Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest. My whole family is excited for this one. Joe Meganello is on the show. You may know him from... Well, being fucking Deathstroke. You may also know him from being El Cid in True Blood. You may know him from his clothing line, Death Saves. You may even know him from Magic Mike XL. But today, today you will know him as a guest on Turn Out of Punk. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutofpunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do. I love you, little buddy. And he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling everyone you know that we do this podcast uh, several times a week these days. And that'll uh, be a great way to support it. You can also support it by subscribing to it and rating it on your podcast platform of choice. Or by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk and checking in over there. And thank you, thank you to all the people that do. Very much appreciated. And speaking of appreciation, my kind, loving appreciation to my friends at Vans who came aboard this podcast a few years ago and said, Damien, we believe in what you do. We just don't believe you should be doing it in your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing. And for that, I really thank them. And yeah, I really, really do. Thank you very much to Vans for doing that. Also, head over to floodmagazine.com and check out Punk As Fuck, Punk AF. The series of videos I did with them a few years ago, they've been releasing them steadily and surely, and there are some great ones up there. Lots of cool guests from from Bleach to Jonah Ray to Moby to all sorts, all sorts of rad guests. Jay Howell's coming up. There's a lot of cool people on that, and there's more to come from them. And these these were videos I recorded a while ago, and I'm, I'm glad you can finally see them because there's a lot of good stuff in there. So head out to floodmagazine.com and check those out. I think that's it. I think that's all we got here. Might as well start the show. Today on the show, Joe Meganello is here. And if you are, you definitely are familiar with Joe Meganello. He is um, someone who is, my whole family, my kids, my wife, everyone was really excited. And they're not very excited, you know, about guests. Well, they, they are, but separately, you know, they're not all excited at the same time about a guest normally. Uh, Joe is someone who I've been a fan of seeing him in various movies for years, going back to Spider-Man. So the fact that he wanted to come on this little show right here and, and talk about punk rock, well, that, that blew me away. Joe is awesome. This was a really fun conversation. I'm so stoked I got to do it. Check out all the movies Joe makes. He's going to be in that Snyder Cut of uh, Justice League that's coming out as well as the film Arch Enemy that his production company put out, and, and Shoplifters, Shoplifters of the World, which he talks about in this interview, and it, it, it sounds like an amazing movie. So both of those you got to check out, and the Snyder Cut, I'm sure. You know, the, guy, the, guy, the guy's a superstar. He's a superstar, and he's here. That, that, that tells you how powerful punk rock is, that we can pull these people in. And he's also, uh, you know, got this incredible clothing line, Death Saves, which is Dungeons and Dragons inspired clothing. We talk about all this stuff in a second. So I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Joe Meganello on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> That's funny. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
Well, as I was just telling you off air, um, there's a lot of things that we connect on, but what I, I spared you from off air, which I will now put you through now is that I've done 300 episodes of this podcast and there has never been a guest on it that the rest of my family has been more excited about at this point. Like I have Deathstroke on the phone and Elseed and my wife and my children are both beside themselves. Wow. Oh, that's <laughs> cool. Weird. Well, great. <laughs> you know, I think Mark Mothersbaugh, when I talked to him, it kind of was multi-generational like that, but I don't think my wife was as excited. So this is, uh, it, it's great to have you on the show. And I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Joe, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Oh, boy. Well, I think there were two big entry points for me. One would have been Henry Rollins. I was obsessed with Rollins. Um, you know, Get in the Van. I, I think I, I, I think I read Get in the Van and then listen, and subsequently listened to the audiobook, um, you know, when it came out. And I and then would have, you know, backtracked obviously into all of the music and the albums that, that Rollins was talking about, mm-hmm. um, both in, uh, going to see those shows work, you know, uh, taking days off of the Hagen dazs to go to the, up to New York to see those shows, those old DIY shows and, and kind of, you know, hangarounds in, in, in DC. And, and then of course, when he was asked to become the lead singer of Black Flag, um, you know, I, I went through all of that at that point. I would say that was my entry point, definitely. Um, but the other side of it is there was this kind of side door because of Metallica. You know, I, you know, Metallica started releasing some covers, and one of them was Last Caress, which is how I found out about the Misfits. So actually, I found out about like Danzig, the Misfits via Metallica because uh, I initially thought, oh, this is a Metallica song, but it doesn't sound like the rest of their stuff. <clears throat> oh wait, no, this was by this band called the Misfits. It's amazing how many people come on the show and it's Metallica is such a gateway because they obviously are so popular, but they are making those reference points to even like bands like discharge, right? On garage days, they're doing like discharge covers, which is, you know, digging pretty deep for, for like a, a, a popular band to be doing. Yeah. So you wind up getting into the influences of your influences. And, you know, a lot of times with bands, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, preaching to the choir here but you know that that's a great way to let an audience know this is who i am or if you like them you'll like me and here you know and um and so yeah metallica when when they really started getting popular really i think gatewayed a lot of people into a lot of different types of music where were you hearing about the you know getting the van and and rollins Mm -hmm. at the time i had a friend of mine had a friend of mine who uh was from dc and he said, Hey, have you ever read this? And I said, No. And he said, You gotta read it. It's the greatest book ever written. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and that was that was then that was it. it. It was a friend who got me into it. Then I got the CDs, which were like awesome because you know, you know, me as an actor, as an artist, the people that I really respected or when I was coming up were people like um uh, you know, Eric Bogosian, people who who they were actors, they were also writers, they were playwrights, they were journalists. And, you know, Rollins fit into that category. Rollins also was into working out, which for me, I was also an athlete, not just an artist growing up. And so to find someone who merged together the, you know, the two Greek ideals, philosophy and, and training, um, for me, it was like, okay, that's my dude. 
Uh, and then I just followed him all the way up through. I mean, literally followed him also. Like I have pictures of, 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 of he and I, um, you know, he played a Pittsburgh show. I went to Carnegie Mellon University and Rollins came and spoke. And you know, my girlfriend at the time was part of the committee that booked him and was handling him. And so she's like, you want to come meet him afterwards? She's like, come with me, you know, surprise me. Come on, come on. And then she pulled me into this room and there was Rollins. And I had about five minutes to hang out and talk with him. Um, and so, you know, both literally and figuratively, I followed that guy around and had all of his books, all went to all of his book signings. Like I just, you know, I was, I was obsessed with him and it, it started with a friend who was from DC. It's funny to think about like how big of a cultural figure he was in, in like the late eighties and into the nineties. Like, you know, he's obviously retreated and he's still a, a huge musical legend, but like in terms of just like guy, he was doing gap commercials and Mac stuff. Like he was <laughs> yeah. just like a crossover star. Well, that was a thing. Yeah, I thought about that a lot, actually, um, in his approach. And now that we have perspective, because now he's in this like new phase where he's kind of like, you know, the the aging, you know, get off my planet guy. I won't even say get off my lawn, you know, because uh, I think that would be restrictive in a global sense. He's the get off my planet guy, <clears throat> you know, but but looking back at you know what he represented or, you know, how involved he was with MTV. Um, and, 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 and all of the other, you know, media outlets, like you said, you know, the gap and yeah, like, you know, where he was popping up in movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, like in the chase playing a cop when he had just ranted on album after album about how much he hated cops from black <laughs> back in the black flag days here, if you want to play this one or Johnny mnemonic. So it was like, I think he, you know, he was a real pioneer in that way. There were people afterwards that certainly made a lot more money and, um, will probably be you know remembered on a larger scale than than henry but henry blew those doors open and um and i think made it he made it popular while retaining the soul i think of what punk is about um i he didn't you know i mean it was like he was comp you know you could say oh he's compromising in that gap ad but he's actually getting mainstream eyeballs on something very, very subversive that is delivering a very poignant message, more poignant than the mainstream um, would be brave enough to present. And I think that that was important at the time. Yeah. And I think like once you're involved in something, you tend to have a sense of ownership that prevents you from seeing how important this kind of outreach stuff is. Like, you know, like you, you need the Metallica's covering these bands to kind of bring people in. Otherwise it's just going to die off if it's too much of a, a closed circle. That's right. And, and I remember, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm good friends with Shepard Ferry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Shepard obviously is, is very good friends with, with Rollins and has done a lot of collaborative stuff with him, you know, and, and I remember at, at some point during the magic mics, when the magic mic movies were being released, um, you know, I was tiring of these stupid questions that I was getting in my press tour. And it was really pissing me off when people would say, you know, we'd come in there and rather than talk about the work or how much fun we had or, you know, it was, um, did you learn any stripper moves that you took home to your wife? Yeah. Far from having an artistic conversation about anything, you know, it just felt like I was off on this branch of like, you know, sellout city. It's like, I just did a, two movies with Steven Soderbergh and Greg Jacobs and, you know, McConaughey who just won an Oscar and, you know, you don't. None of that was being talked about. And there's a part of me that understood that, but there was also another part of me that was like, man, I am really far from home. And, you know, what 
was cool about, you know, Shepard was like, look, man, you have a mainstream audience that a lot of subversive people don't have. And you're going to be able to, at some point, if they ever print it <laughs> or listen to what you're saying, be able to, to deliver, you know, a, a cool message to, you know, to a mainstream audience or a subversive message to a mainstream audience. Just keep that in mind. You know, this is building towards something. And, and it was that conversation with Shepard that kind of put me straight. It was like, are you selling out <laughs> or, you know, are you expanding an audience that wouldn't normally listen to your type of music, which is kind of like a segue into like thrash metal, which is like, look at what Metallica did. You know, they took a lot of heat for what they did. Um, and it felt like they were abandoning, you know, thousands of their fans. But what happened was millions of people that came in through the door and started like people who never would have listened to Ride the Lightning are now listening to Ride the Lightning. Well, and I think like, look at what, like I was watching a video that you did uh, recently where you're answering people's questions about D and D and it was just mind blowing because mm -hmm. I went to Dungeons and Dragons summer camp for like eight years and oh it felt God. like I was listening to like one of my counselors, like the shit you were dropping in there. I'm like, <laughs> I'm taking notes. I'm like, oh shit, that makes sense about having names on your DM screen. Like why you got to think of so many stupid names all the time. Like, why wouldn't you have that list there? You know, like the stuff you're saying, it's like, it's yeah. so weird to see that being brought into like a mainstream forum and like growing up in, in the, in the eighties and into the nineties where there was like legit hate for D and D like sure you did something with D and D like people were like, Oh shit, that kid's a Satanist or, or that's like, you know, pre trench coat mafia. That was the trench coat mafia were the Dungeons and Dragons kids. And so, Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, they were the ones who were, who had on the misfits t-shirts and were <laughs> listening to Metallica like that's and, and I mean, look at like paradise lost in the West Memphis three. Like there were kids that went to jail. Yeah. Because they thought because they wore all black and listened to Metallica, they were murderers. Yeah. No, yeah. Oh God, That's like the only criteria you needed to nail somebody to the wall. And, and Dungeons and Dragons was, was that way. You know, the interesting thing is like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is like kind of that, like it, it, no, it was like DIY, you know, straight out of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. We're selling these little boxes out of the trunk of our car, off the porch of our house. And this thing just catches fire and takes off, but then becomes corporatized. Mm-hmm. And then now you have this conglomerate that's making decisions about where this like super hardcore, creative, scary brand was supposed to go. And what they're doing is they're defanging it and making it safe. Yeah. And the beauty of Dungeons and Dragons, as opposed to all the other games like Candyland or, you know, I mean, you could get into all the other tabletop role playing games. The thing D&D &D had going for it was the fact that it was scary. That's what made it exciting you know as soon as it was satanic or pseudo satanic they sold four times as many books the following year so there's something that i love about and you know i started a streetwear line basically um to try to keep that spirit alive where you felt like you were doing something you shouldn't be doing and and keep it punk you know in a in a, in a when it, as it as it's being corporatized yeah, and I think that was actually my first exposure to the the concept of of a sellout and and to be like into poser shit was the idea of like when I went to that camp, we all played first edition. Even though I was a kid and all of my books were second edition, I came in the right. first day they're like never bring those books back here. You don't need them. <laughs> you know, cuz it was yeah. like like you're saying those were the corporate version of this thing that was viewed as being pure and obviously we're like what fifth generation now right so we've moved a few generations past this thing but that was like the first place i was introduced to this idea of like no 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 that's not the real shit this is the real shit 
Yeah, but it's also great to have that education because you want to understand where it came from. For example, like when D&D first hit the scene, it wasn't listed as a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. It was listed as a war game. It was the first war game that involved playing a role where instead of in being in charge of, of an entire army or Napoleon's forces in Russia, instead you're one soldier in that army. So you get to name your soldier, you get to, you know, come up with the backstory for your soldier. It just, you know, it created a, a second half, a, a flip side of the coin, which was, I think what really made it super popular, but you know, it wasn't a role playing game. It was a war game. So understanding where it came from and the intentions, you know, in the beginning and also being able to mark, you know, with flagpoles where it deviated from that path or was forced to deviate because of, you know, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons and all the religious groups that came up and tried to destroy it and burn the kids' books. Like understanding that history, you understand what's the at the fabric and at the core of it. It's like it's like, you know, reading the Bible in ancient Greek or you know what I mean? I mean or, or like studying, you know, ancient math, like learning, you know, learning Hebrew to read the old original scriptures in you know, the, 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 the hand the that they were, that they were yeah. written. And that's right. It's yeah. like, you know, you, you get an understanding of where the game is and then you get an understanding of like what needs to be preserved out of it as we go through, like we're in a phase right now where I think fantasy for people is like, you know, lollipop hammers and unicorns pooping rainbow sherbet. And that's, that's D and D now. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, you can go make, the D and D My Little Pony crossover, I understand, mm-hmm. but for another generation, fantasy is Conan the Barbarian, yeah. <laughs> you know, and John Milius yeah. and Valeria, and you know, um, oh, you know, he's wearing a loincloth, she's wearing a metal bikini. Like we're all you know, we're all equal here, you know, but we're running around and cutting heads off and lighting people on fire, which is what the game is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can attempt to take that out or pretend that it's not that, but, you know, um, understanding where, where, where it comes from, I guess that was long winded, but there you go. No, it's funny. Cause like it, it is something where we're at this moment where everything is commodified and everything is becoming corporatized, you know, and there's like a version of something that's kind of like mass marketable, but it's, it's like with Dungeons and Dragons, like anything else, I guess there's also this side of it where it's like, no, there's also this thing where it came from, like this sort of like the mm-hmm. DIY side of Dungeons and Dragons where yeah. you're tracking down old books and you're you're like buying old stuff so you can kind of keep playing like the, the original version of the of the thing. That's right. And, and it's like, look, you can go into Hot Topic and you can buy your pop punk t-shirt, mm-hmm. okay? And your black lipstick and your eyeliner and your manic panic, you know, there's that. <clears throat> but let's not forget about, you know, the people going to score heroin in the Lower East Side, you know, yeah. in, in in the late 70s, you know, early 80s. Like, you know, that's that's where this came from. That's where this was birthed. Now, I understand it's there and that's fine. But like, you know, it was scary and it was real. And the best stuff came from that period or, you know, the best grapes grew out of that soil. So let's not forget that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also, I guess going back to like high school, you know, like being the fact that you're like into D&D like you are into heavy metal, into sports, <laughs> into acting, like, was it like a, what was high school like where you went, where you could be <laughs> in all these different like lunch tables at once? Yeah, I was friends. I had a lot of different friends, you know, yeah. um, 
you know, I'd walk in to school past the street corner where everybody was smoking cigarettes and I'd have my skid row t-shirt on and I'd kind of point over and the, the kids that were smoking would wave and say, what's up? And I'd go in and, you know, and I was good at school. And then I had the, you know, so I had the academic friends. I had the friends on the sports teams that I hung out with and had the keg parties with on Friday nights. And, and then I had my friends that I would wake up super early on Sunday morning to go shoot movies with. And then I had my D and D friends that I ran games with or, you know, other, other games. And so I had a, there was a lot to cultivate, I guess, is what I'm saying. So I think what that, what that meant was that I was, I was going to be a late bloomer. Like I was going to do okay as we went along, but it was going to be a late bloomer because there was just a lot of balls to keep in the air and, and, and a lot of, um, you know, a lot to develop. Basically, I never came home after school. I never didn't have a million things to do during the summer. I was always busy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, of course I wound up in the arts because it was the one place where I could to, you know, have the best chance at utilizing all these weird skills and interests in all these different areas. Yeah. I guess there's like not a lot of careers in, in role-playing games at that time, you know, like like what are there like being a writer, I guess, at that point, an artist obviously too. Yeah. I, I, I think when I was younger, I wanted to work at TSR, but that was my dream, but, but I didn't, I didn't think you were allowed to do that. I was actually talking to friend, a friend of mine who works at you know, wizards of the coast who, you know, uh, who own and shepherd Dungeons and Dragons. And we were having a talk and I was like, man, I just didn't think I was allowed to have that job, mm-hmm. you know, but here I am as an adult, um, you know, they've been great, you know, about, um, allowing me to play in the sandbox and I've been able to, you know, write stories and, and, and create characters and, you know, work on modules with them. And, um, you know, and then I, you know, have like some of my characters then appear in video games and things like that. And they have, you know, figures that are sold in, you know, six packs that you can buy in a toy store or a gaming store. So it's like, whew, okay, like we are getting through a lot of these things on the list. Like, you know what I mean? Like I am not, you know, I, I am, I'm getting closer to, you know, I regret nothing. Uh, you need that Rollins buddy picture though. You don't understand. Anytime people would ask me, they would say for years, you know, because I, you know, produce films too. And and it's like, who do you want in this film? Who would you like to work with? And it used to be like there was a trifecta. It was David Bowie, Henry Rollins, and Tom Waits. And and so, yes, I've I've got to get something going (laughs) with with Rollins, man, for sure. I, I, you know, so I directed a... Uh, one night only staged reading of the movie Major League. And I cast, <clears throat> I mean, put my own cast together. Rich Eisen came in and did the stage directions. You know, Thomas Lennon played, you know, the Bob Euchre role. Uh, I cast, uh, Billy Gardell was uh, Coach Lou Brown. Uh, I cast my wife, Sophia, as Pedro Serrano. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I mean, it was like hilarious. It was amazing. But I, I had initially called Rollins to come in, and uh, and and I, I think I was I was maybe gonna cross cross cast him as the owner of the team. It was either the owner of the team or, or or you know the part that Billy played. You know, it was like one or the other. I was like, if I can get Rollins, like I'll slot him into somewhere. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> he was busy. I think he it was like 
like Ian McKay's birthday the next day and he had to go to, you know, so it was like, all right, that's a good, that's a he's got good priorities. Excuse. That's nice. That's a good excuse. Still, I'll yeah. accept that. That's cool. You know, so no, I've, I've always been happy. I just love him and, and would love to, you know, be able to spend more time with him. Um, yeah. Was there any like weirdness between these other friends that you had and like the fact that you did like hang out with the metal and D and D kids or was like everyone kind of, kind of chill about it because as we went, got back, there was that satanic panic kind of going on. Yeah, there was. I remember, you know, as I was running games and things, you know, role-playing games uh, for my friends, uh, I remember, you know, kids' moms coming to me and yanking them out of the game and telling me I should watch out and, you know, stuff like that. So I remember that. There was a presence of that that had penetrated my, you know, my neighborhood. Um, You know, as far as, uh, I mean... Yeah, you know, the, I remember in the in the cafeteria, a kid I was friends with who was, you know, one of like one of the kids that was always doing LSD after school and was kind of wild and out there. And yeah. this, you know, artist, this real skateboarding artist kid that that I was friends with. Uh, I didn't join him in those acid parties after school because I had practice and I had weightlifting. So, you know, I, I was always, you know, I was I was pretty straight edge through high school for the most part. Um, with athletics, you know, that, that really kept me out of trouble, but it wasn't to say that I wasn't friends with those kids or didn't like those kids. And, um, and I remember one of the other captains on the football team was picking on that kid and I stepped in and was like, you know, leave him alone. And if you're going to fight him, you have to fight me first. And, you know, I did that, that whole thing. Um, so there was conflict in a way sometimes between, you know, but, you know, it was like back then it was, yeah, everybody was fighting with everybody else. So, you know, I don't know what to say. Yeah, it was it was like a lot more. Well, I don't know. Like I'm not in school now, so I can't say. But and my kids right. are pretty young at this point. But it seems like it was a lot more kind of like, oh, you're this type of kid. You're this type of kid. Like you had to pick your kind of like little little group that you were going to be in. And that's that's where you stayed. That's why and, it's and awesome. You, that you, you remember. Well, you remember record stores. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, if you didn't look like a punk rocker or a metalhead and you're in the metal section, I mean, first of all, there's like 800 subgenres of music now. And back in the day we had six, there were six sections in a music store and that was it, <clears throat> you know? And it was like, if you didn't look like you belonged in one of the sections, then it was like, somebody might say something to you or look at you funny. You know, yeah. it was like a funny, it was a really funny thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it comes out of youthful insecurity. And I think it also comes out of the fact that, you know, everything was, you know, like you only had so much money. So you were like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to buy these records and this shirt and this will be my identifier as who I am versus like, right. I'm going to be able to afford these D and D books or, you know, like there's, there's just only so much money to kind of like go to these events and things like that. So I think you had to right. choose a lot more than now where it's just like, if you can afford the streaming, you can afford to see it all and take it all in. But yeah, that's right. You had to pick a side and, and that was your side. And there was also a, a sense of identity, um, to being in one of these gangs really, you know, um, very much. And then very, people were very much more snobby <laughs> about what kind of music you listen to, which is why I think selling out was such a big deal because it was like, you have to be very protective of your image. Mm-hmm. It was a difference between, you know, what Metallica was doing out of San Francisco, you know, you think about them and like, you know, denim jackets, 
and a metal tee underneath or, you know, like a some man of war tee or something on or Sam Hain t-shirt, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or Cliff Burton in a, in a misfit shirt with a denim jacket over the top. But then you go down to LA and it's like, all the guys are in high heels and makeup. Yeah. It was like a very, like <laughs> everything was taken up very regionally, you know, like you look at music and the idea that you could have regional hits back then, like a song that only is popular because like an artist like UGK and rap music that like, basically were the kings of of the south like you know kings right. of texas and and yet you don't really hear of them on the radio if you're kind of anywhere north certainly in canada we weren't hearing about them no that's right and it was like you know you had to go get a magazine and read the magazine to find out what your band, favorite band was doing and that came out like once a month yeah so you get the magazine you read that then you go in the back you you'd start mailing letters to places to get a copy of that tape or that bootleg or that t-shirt and you just kind of like mailed your you know tried to fold the paper so that you could hide your cash in the envelope no one (laughs) would open it up and steal it and you just prayed that thing came back in six or eight weeks and and that's how you did it you know and um there was like a real commitment and like you said it's like you only had so much money so like i remember listening to ride the lightning for 18 months straight without listening yes. to another tape. I just flipped it and flipped it and flipped it. Oh, it's time for homework. Boom. Side A, boom, side B, you know, and that was how I went for a year and a half. And then I was like, shit, okay, I'll get, I'll get master of puppets. That looks cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's amazing how intimately you get to know a record because like you're saying, you, you, you had to listen to it over and over again because that's all you had. So, so yeah, yeah. you, you studied it. Like there's a relationship to music that I think is different when you have to sacrifice for it just because you, you, you put like your blood and sweat into it. Like when you make the food for yourself versus buying it. Yeah. Yeah, very much. No, I mean, but that's also like, you you know, this is like when you get into like Fight Club, which is the whole crux of Fight Club. It's like, you know, we're men who traditionally were hunting our food. And now we go to the people can go to the grocery store and buy their food. So what's the purpose of us anymore? And what are we doing here? And, you know, it's this exploration of where does that energy go? And, um, and I think at that time, I think, you know, that that energy was celebrated more or at least talked about more because there were these, you know, whether it was punk, you know, or the first mosh pits or, you know, um, you know, my first concert, which was Pantera Sepultura Biohazard, you know, That's like a hard ass show. Oh, <laughs> my, my God. First concert. So, you know, <laughs> on, the second, you? On, the, on the second leg of uh, a vulgar display. So, oh you know, it was like when you catch those concerts you went to at that point in time when only those three albums were out or only those two albums were out it was like those are the greatest hit shows basically that you saw as the bands were coming up and um i was i guess i was 16 i want to say 16 was it a violent trip i can imagine it would have been well you know there there were mosh pits and then there was a pantera show where you know lots of skinheads Mm -hmm. lots of dudes with head tattoos that you're pretty sure are some sort of you know mean something let's say mm-hmm. um uh and 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 it's like there were punches thrown a friend of mine i went with from the football team got the shit kicked out of him in, in a pit you know it, it was uh yeah it was, it was dangerous man some of those shows were like borderline dangerous you had to really keep your wits about you and, and be smart 
Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, and it's like the 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 divide, you know, because like you're on you're you're finding out about these bands on TV or maybe through you know the music magazine where they're all side by side, but the difference between a show like that versus you know even a Metallica show back then would have been night and day. Yeah, I'll, I will say this though. Metallica played off the live shit binge and purge box set. And I went to that show and um, sad L- Lane Staley had a hair, had a heroin overdose, not, not one of, not the fatal one, but a heroin overdose right before the show. And so I didn't get to see Alice in Chains and Metallica on the same show. And that was a bummer, man. Um, but, but anyway, at this Metallica show, um, you know, there was the pit, then there was the stadium seating and then there was the field. And the field just went on as far back as the eye could see. And this thing happened at that show when Metallica came on where this people went to each side, like Braveheart, you know, the, okay, here's the, the, the British are over there and the Scottish are over here and they would wait. And someone in the middle would like, you know, UFC, are you ready? Are you ready? Let's get it on. And both sides would just run at each other. Wall of death and, each other. <laughs> It was like, I remember I was in the seats at that point. I was in the pit and then I came back to my seat and I turned around and was like, oh my God, you know, it was medieval uh, what they had cooked up for that one. And and then there were just like bodies in the middle and they would kind of come in and, and clear out the dead and then they'd go again. Yeah. Yeah. That That is definitely, I guess that's the thing about Metallica is they're so big. That just that sheer number of people is going to be way more dangerous than any mosh pit could ever be. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Uh, I guess like uh, I heard a rumor. Well, I read online. I should say that you roadied for Goldfinger. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Well, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I had like, you know, like there's prison and then there's country club prison. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are roadies and then there's like I was country club roadie. So, you know, I was best friends with John Feldman, still am. Anyway, he called me up and he's like, Hey man, you ever been to Australia and New Zealand? I was like, no, he's like, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, sure. So, uh, he put me on payroll as secu- his security, which, you know, meant like I got to like drunk, throw drunken kids off the stage, you know, in Brisbane, Australia. And, you know, John would throw his guitar over to the side and, you know, I'd catch it out of the air and, you know what I mean? Hand it over to the sound tech cadaver. That was his name. And, uh, you know, so it was like, yeah, it was fun, man. Um, it was, it was a good time. So, um, but yeah, I definitely, I, you know, I, I'm an actor. I like traveling. I like that. I like the rock and roll lifestyle, man. It's cool. Was that like a festival tour? That they were on? Uh, they played, you know, I know they played like four sold out shows at a club in Melbourne. So no, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, um, um, festivals. It was, it was their own gigs. Okay. Just bouncing around. That's the best place to tour, though. Yeah, and then they came back to the states, and I would always, you know, I would go to their shows in in the states, which which were some festivals, you know, like they'd play, uh, I don't know, like the Warp Tour and stuff like that. I'd go hang out with John backstage. Did you ever see them come through Pittsburgh? Like, did you know them know them through there back then? No, I didn't. I mean, I, I knew their music, obviously, but yeah. um, you know, no, I I didn't. Um, you know, when they would have been touring, I was in drama school, which meant I was booked like, you know, six days a week, you know, eight in the morning till yeah. one in the morning. I'm busy. And so I just didn't that I didn't I didn't know anything that was going on in the world other than the cover front cover of USA Today in the, the newspaper box uh, on my way to to, to school. <laughs> you yeah. know, I, I just didn't I didn't know what was happening. I was just working. 
like I said at the same time, like Anti-Flag and all those bands would have been kind of popping off in Pittsburgh. Like, were you aware of those bands? Or is once again, like something that you're just kind of focused on the craft at this point? No, no, no. One, even in high school, you know, there's a, so my first film as a director, my first feat, well, I should say my first feature as a director um, was this documentary called Le Bear. And, uh, and my director of photography is a guy I went to high school with uh, named Andrew Wheeler. And he's an AFI award-winning cinematographer. And so he shot that movie. And then the movie I produced, um, uh, which is actually relevant to our conversation, is a movie called Shoplifters of the World, which is about the day the Smiths broke up in 1987. And um, so we made this movie about this urban legend that Morrissey talked about in a Details magazine, 90s Details magazine uh, article about a kid who was such a huge Smiths fan. And he was so distraught uh, when they broke up that he held up his local heavy metal station in Denver, Colorado at gunpoint and forced the DJ to play nothing but Smith's records all night long so that the kid could impress this girl he was in love with. And so we made this movie about it and I play the metal DJ, Full Metal Mickey, you know, Full Metal Mickey, Kiss 101, you know, and I do the whole, you know, and I and I love my metal and, and Ozzy. Uh, was so kind as to uh, Ozzy and, and, and Sharon uh, gave us Bark at the Moon for the beginning <laughs> of the movie. Yeah. So like that's what comes on and you're introduced to me, you know, all night Denver, you know, bang your heads with, you know, Ozzy playing. And uh, and then uh, the kid and I have this interface through the movie where, you know, I impart on him my my heavy metal wisdom uh, while also creating an appreciation for the Smiths. And, and he does the reverse. Uh, and so it's kind of like this, you know, Sam Shepardy, true Westy kind of, you know, merging of the minds between the, you know, the Mopey Smith's band and the, you know, aggro metalhead. And um, um, so anyway, where was I? Where did I start where I went on this crazy tangent like that? We're talking about AFI. Oh, we're talking about. Oh, we're talking about. Yeah. So this guy, Andrew Wheeler. So he was um, he was actually a punk. He was a punk musician. He was in a punk band uh, called, I believe, Reagan Squad is the name of the band. God Squad um, and or Reagan Squad? Reagan Squad. Reagan and squad. and they okay. played they played out quite a bit. And so um I knew that he was into like, you know, all the uh all the Pittsburgh punk, you know, the Pittsburgh punk scene. And so I was I was definitely aware of it, but um, you know, in high school, like I said, I never I never had a night where I went and did something, you know. I, I had school, then I had practice or a game, and then I uh and then you know the weekends were practice or film sections of games and stuff so i i was i wasn't a really big part of the you know the that scene where i think in high school you know during the summers like i said i would go to i would go to the big thrash metal shows or like mm -hmm. you know it was like pantera sepultura biohazard gave way to you know white zombie and and danzig and um uh of course metallica you know, the Deftones had just started up that time and I knew about them. So I'd go see them. Um, so, yeah, I had my I had my 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 bands, but I just wasn't, uh, you know. But anyway, my my DP was very involved and still is. And, and it's he has a really great um, I think his punk sensibility creates a certain aesthetic when he shoots film. He sees things with a certain eye. He's not afraid to catch the grime or catch the character, let's put it, of uh you know, uh, of a certain location or, um, you know, he, he makes things look more real, which I really like. So were you kind of like aware of any sort of like local Pittsburgh bands at that time, like metal bands even? Cause there's such a, it's such an amazing city. Like even now there's that band code orange. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard them that have kind of popped up there, but there's like, uh, 
such a vibrant kind of continuum of music coming out of that place. When I was there, it was, it was like rusted root and the Clarks, you know, that those yeah. are the Pittsburgh bands, you know, rusted root, especially they, they were, they were the, 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 the big band. So, um, as far as all that went, um, you know, I had a friend of mine who had a, he was obsessed with Mr. Bungle. So he had a Mr. Bungle esque band, like a kind of like a, like a Mike Patton, very heavily influenced, <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of, kind of deal. Um, you know, but, uh, but at the time I'm trying to think of like, you know, what was going on in Pittsburgh. I mean, it was like drum and bass had hit Pittsburgh and that was like most, you know, surprisingly a ton of places had, had drum and bass bars and drum and bass nights mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, but um yeah as far as back then no i didn't i didn't i wasn't like aware or or going to see homegrown metal bands at that time um i was like i said i was busy when during the summer when all those you know the touring bands would come through so you, your first movie uh spider-man right was that the first like sort of big national film that you did yeah first professional film yeah what was so were you familiar obviously with like sam raimi and evil dead before that yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I knew Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two, uh, Army of Darkness. Sure, I knew Sam and Darkman. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I knew I knew Sam, um, and uh, and I thought that his sensibility was was really interesting. And uh, for I think the you know the the, the potential quirkiness of <clears throat> you know there there could be a thread of quirkiness. It was I think at the time it was like well. I was very curious to see what he did with the script in terms of, of the humanity of the character. And I think that's what, you know, really, I think blew the genre open was that Sam made a superhero human and very, very relatable. And Mm -hmm. I thought that that was something that forever changed all the superhero movies that came afterwards really had to, you know, they had to hire great actors and they had to, um, really keep things grounded in, in, a, in a real humanness. And I think Sam nailed that. It's kind of like the way evil dead did with horror films too. And like, I guess evil dead too, even though it's more of a comedy at that point, but just like the psychology of that movie and how, how like everything that kind of came after it in the genre was forever affected by it, even when they're rejecting it. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, you know, this conversation, like we're talking about a lot of the people who were pioneers and, kind of marking with flags, like where, where, what they did changed everything that came afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's the thing about, uh, I don't know. That's the thing about culture that like, it's always these outsiders that, that end up making the thing that, that changes it, you know, like that, that, that disrupts it and not in a sort of present day disruptor kind of sense, but like, you know, just the idea of like, you know, just changing the world around you through, through doing stuff on your own. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about punk and, um, you know, I read the Beastie Boys book Mm -hmm. over the summer and they grew up during that punk era that we're talking about and CBGBs and everything that was going on down there in Southern Manhattan. And, um, but then they became corporatized and to a certain degree or commoditized and they really didn't like the, you know, what they had become, I think artistically. And there was something inside of them screaming at them in their gut to, um, you know, get off of this train and 
who knows when that other train comes in, if it even comes in, but we've, we've got to go, we got to go do something else. And that that's the gut instinct to not make license to ill too, and instead make Paul's boutique. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. Like how many artists make their best album, the third record in, you know, and just completely change where they're going. Like it's, it's, it's really rare to kind of see, you know, them, a, a group do that, you know, obviously including their punk stuff as a, like a whole album, but like they really find their direction kind of at their lowest point commercially. Yeah. And, and that's just, it's just part of that artistic trip. You know, it's like Metallica's black album. You know, it took me a while to really fully say, okay, I'm going to get into this because there weren't eight minute long songs on, ex- you know, basically, a, a you know, some kind of experimental album where every song is about death. You know, it's like, yeah, I don't want to yeah. listen to it if it's not that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, they were attempting to, to go somewhere where the, the muse was taking them. And, and I think that that's incredibly important because like I said, it's like, you know, say what you want about the Kardashians wearing Metallica shirts or whether or not they, they actually do listen to Slayer in their free time. You know, I don't know who cares, but the fact is like, it's kind of rad that, you can't find a vintage Metallica shirt for under $2,000. I think that there's something cool about that and vindicating to me about that, that like this little band that had no radio play and no videos, you know, is now like the most coveted t-shirt you can find. It's like, okay, I think that's kind of rad. And I think that that to me is right. That, that that's right. <laughs> you know, I, I, something feels right about that. I don't know. I, I I think it's kind of a bummer that I can't find a, uh, you know, pusshead Metallica shirt for less than two grand now. But I <laughs> hey, get no, what you're check saying. out the company. The company made worn. Yeah. yeah. A, do you know that company? There's a company made worn. They've gone around the world. Yeah. And they found all the bootlegs that were sold illegally outside of the concerts. Ah, yeah. And they found out who made them all illegally. And then they went and cleared them with all the bands. Well, so they got so all they're the actions now. And they print them on the material. They found a way to do the way the lead paint used to crack. They well, they found out a way to make that kind of paint that cracks like that without the lead in it. Yeah. Uh, and 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 they've they've have like all the old sewing machines. So all those shirts are sewed and they're made to the exact specifications that they were back. And they feel like they've been pulled out of a trunk. And uh, go to their site because they've got all the old pusshead stuff. They've got a, I mean, short of straw, vertigo, like everything. Um, and then there's like great, like, um, you know, they've got all the great misfit shirts. They've got all the great Aussie stuff, black Sabbath, like stones. I mean, grateful dead. Like they've even got like Tupac and Biggie, like they've got like everything. And, and I think you would, and it's not too grand. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. That's a little more <laughs> my price range as, as a dad, it's been amazing to kind of watch all these things. Like you're saying, it's kind of indicating to watch like, you know, yourself through death saves and, and D and D or, or just like, you know, all these things that I liked as a kid that weren't necessarily cool. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember being like laughed at a party for trying to put a cramps record on as a, as a teenager <laughs> oh, and no. feeling vindicated when they were on 90210, you know, like it just feels like that's what's happening on a mass scale. Now, like all these things that you're like, yeah, these were cool. We were right. Like these people were wrong around Well, But us. you're also like, you're going to put on that cramps record and one person at the party is going to be like, that was rad. You know, one person. Now the other 99 are going to like hate you, but the one (laughs) one's like, all right, we're friends. You know, whereas now with the internet, I think what's what cool or what was 
experimental, like, I guess during this phase of my life or career or creativity or whatever was like, you know, it was like, there are like millions of people out there who are into this. Now we were all scattered to the wind at the day, you know, back in the eighties, it was hard to find who the weirdos were unless they really just, you know, flew the freak flag and were part of the trench comb mafia. Then you're like, oh, okay, those guys are probably in a D and D and Metallica. I bet. But you know, without that, it's like you just wouldn't know who all the weirdos are. Now with the internet, this is actually one of the positives of the internet is like these like groupings that get created of like at the record store. You know, like the sections are there. It's like so. What I started doing was talking about it publicly, putting myself out there publicly, and what happened was all these people came back to me and were like, "Hey, we're into that." We like that. Thanks for speaking out about it. Um, I don't feel so embarrassed when I talk about it. like that kid that was getting bullied by the jocks, you know, or by one of my football captains, you know, I should, you know, picked on. Mm-hmm. And I stepped in. It's like in a, in a way it's like, hey, stop picking on these kids. We're all grown up now. You know, if you like, you know, Game of Thrones, I was created by two guys who grew up playing D&D. So, you know, shut up because you surrendered your Sunday nights for a decade (laughs) to these two guys. So be thankful and understand where their fountainhead of creativity came from. You know, it's like my D&D group is, you know, Tom Morello. It's like, do you like Rage Against the Machine? You think they're cool? Okay. He's like the most hardcore D&D gamer. about what he wants to do with his character and his polar bear mount. Okay. Like, you know, like this is like real stuff. Vince Vaughn, Vince Vaughn started character building and building characters playing D and D in Chicago where he grew up and the big show, like you go on and on, all of us cut our teeth on this stuff. So there's a bit of it to kind of let everybody know, look, we're a generation of people who were influenced, heavily influenced by these things. And in the true sense of the eighties, there are a lot of things that fit under one umbrella. You know, it's like, you know, we all hung out in the comic book stores. We all hung out in the arcades. We all, you know, played Dungeons and Dragons. We all had a Led Zeppelin poster on the wall and a, you know, we had Metallica pushead t-shirts, like all of us. This was a collected experience. We didn't know that we were all putting all those pieces together. So that's why I started my streetwear line death saves because it's like a combination of all of that in the spirit of, 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 you know, that era and that energy that like we were onto something and we were part of this secret society. And the more that like the parents and the churches and the, the government, the grownups spoke out about it, the more we were driven towards it and it made it cool. And so let's not forget all of that. Like you were saying, let's not forget history. Like let's, let's keep that alive because you know, that's, that's where this thing came from. And, you know, I, I'm trying to like, keep it pure in a way. Yeah, no. And I think it's also like, that's the original thing that calls all these interesting people, you know, first off, because it's like one of the first outlets that you have as a young person where it's like, now you got to use your imagination. Like you're not just playing with someone else's imagination. It's up yeah. to you to visualize everything and to create this world. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, like, it's not like a toy or even a video game. Like you're, you're really starting from scratch with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, um, it was incredibly helpful for me as an actor, as a producer, especially, um, you know, it it was incredibly helpful. Um, and, and I mean, I was, I was working out my 10,000 hours before I even knew that was a job that you could have. You know, I just thought 
working for TSR, there's, I don't know how you do that, you know, and yeah. I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't know. Um, oh, but wait, there's this thing where you can like write dialogue and what the characters say and you can make them do anything and you can write these backstories and, you know, I could, I could be a werewolf for, for five years on a TV show. A guy transforms into a wolf. Okay. That's cool. I could be a guy with a mohawk and an eye patch with a sword and a shotgun who wants to kill this guy in a bat suit. Yeah. All right. I'll do that. You know, like to me, that was the bridge for me. It was kind of like all of the things that I loved about tabletop gaming and story creation or mythology. Um, I could put into this career that here we are, you know, I'm two decades in and, um, you know, it, it's, it, I'm, I'm just kind of now getting closer to that nucleus of like what drove me to be creative in the first place. And I really think for me, that's what it is. It's kind of a march back into my childhood and what kept me up all night, what I couldn't wait to wake up and keep thinking about more, write about and, you know, create. And so, um, I'm trying to do that now. And what's really cool is we're at a time in in Hollywood where, you know, example, like, you know, my, my movie Arch Enemy it's out it's um it's kind of like what if superman landed on the wrong planet mm-hmm. which is completely taken from all the what if comics that i used to read hanging around the you know the comic book stores in the arcades so um we now have the technology to do it and uh we can make these stories and i'm in a position where i can so um you know i've tried to unify that audience or see who all those people are out there who are into the same things that i am or like those things and now i'm trying to get in position to, to really, you know, create the content and, and do it right. Whether that's with somebody else's IP uh, that lets me come play in their sandbox or, um, or something on my own. You know, you always seem to play, like I saw an interview with you where you talked about your character and it looks like your character is like uh, some sort of lawful evil alignment uh, mm-hmm. in D and D. And then you're playing Deathstroke, you know, and, and you're into the, the, you know, obviously the evilly sounding metal stuff. Do you like, do you look at these places as being kind of like an outlet to also, you know, experiment with this sort of stuff that you talked about earlier, like this darker side of, of our personalities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the scripts that I'm, the scripts that I'm most attracted to or the ones that I get most excited about are the ones that are, you know, the shock value. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we would go to true blood and we would do our table reads and, and we would, like there was, you know, audible gas and, oh, whoa, you know, like where people start clapping out of nervous tension because of <clears throat> the crazy things we were reading that were like highly illegal in the real world. <laughs> you know, if you did that, they'd lock you up without a key, you know. Um, so those are the things that are exciting to be able to go to those places that other people are scared to go to or that you can't go to. Um you know, those are the things that make you the most excited is when you can step out and, and be something other than what you can be within the confines of reality. And I think that's that's always been been interesting to me. Uh, like looking back, True Blood had some awesome music, too. Like there's yeah. that uh, Best Coast Iggy Pop collaboration that uh, it's a pretty sick song. I go back and listen to that. Like it, it was a, it was a really cool show. And I think the music is something that people didn't really talk about enough with it. No, uh, unfortunately, they didn't. No, uh, well, I, I think in certain circles, <clears throat> in certain circles, people people knew, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, looking back, I mean, shoot, they were, <clears throat> excuse me, they were, uh, 
Yeah, no, I was, I was, uh, that actually, that, that was a big thing, but I think HBO has a long history, um, through that period, like the golden era period, whether you go back to the Sopranos, even Sopranos, the wire, um, you know, certainly true blood. Those were, if you go back and watch those shows again, the soundtracks are incredible. Well, even odds with Evan Seinfeld, your friend from biohazard. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, this has been amazing. And at some point down the line, uh, if you ever want to come back and nerd out, uh, Joe, please know the door is always open. But can I trouble you with one or two more questions? Sure. Yeah. Hit me. Uh, number one, uh, you, you know, you mentioned uh, your friend Paul White, Big Show, and also you did movies with, uh, you know, Kevin Nash, Big Sexy. Were you a wrestling fan at all? Because that is also my D&D-like obsession. Yeah, well, I also did a movie a long time ago with uh, Ken Kennedy. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that was produced by WWE. So, um, yeah, so I have I am no stranger to um, working with uh, with wrestlers and, and hanging with wrestlers. Um, yeah, I was a huge fan growing up. Um there's a picture that is lost that was lost. Someone stole. I went to go see a social distortion show down at the house of blues in Anaheim. And I brought a camera with me at the time, disposable camera. Cause this was the year 2001. Mm-hmm. So I had a camera with me and they wouldn't let me bring it inside. So I went and I snuck around, looked, look every direction and then like buried it under the roots of a potted plant in <laughs> yeah. downtown Disney in Anaheim. Went into the social media show, had a great time, hung out with the guys backstage, came back out, and the camera was gone. Oh. On that camera was were a bunch of photos of me with the late Randy Poffo, aka the Macho Man, in his Bonesaw McGraw gear. Oh my uh, God, that's on, amazing! On, on the set of Spider Man. Yeah, rest uh, in peace. Who was my favorite wrestler of all time? Who I was for Halloween one year, like you know, I just I love old school wrestling. Um, I can talk about it like ad nauseum. I, um, I, 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 I hosted Monday nights raw from the Barclays center in Brooklyn with, with Arnold one night and Hulk Hogan. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, old school wrestling guy. I should say. The last thing I want to do ask you though, is I've always want, I've always kind of tossed this over in my mind and it's been a, a, a quagmire of D and D thought for me. Isn't true neutral truly the most evil alignment? Because you can switch at any time where you believe your beliefs are. Yeah. I mean, this is a debate I think we've been having recently, which is like, if you're going by the alignment system, somebody asked me what's worse to have in your party, chaotic evil or lawful evil. And I was like, well, you know, Chaotic evil is the devil, you know, but it's just going to be a rough ride the whole way. It's, it's, it sucks. It's going to suck because that person's not going to play well with the group, but it's just going to, you know, they're going to try to kill you probably. Mm-hmm. Lawful evil, they're going to play nice because they've got a long play and there's something they're not telling you about. And the closer you get to finishing your goal is when you have really have to be aware with a lawful evil character because, you know, um, they're going to find a way to in, engender themselves to you and then they're going to, you know, they're the scorpion and the toad. They're going to take off. As far as neutral goes, man, yeah, I've had neutral characters in parties, and I've 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 DM'd watching, you know, kind of like neutral characters in parties, and uh, it could get frustrating for the other players, I think, yeah. um, because you know, 
I think especially if anyone played team sports or comes from a team sport dynamic or works well within a group, there's, there's a madness that's created with like, why did you just do that? Why wouldn't you do the thing that benefits all of us? And, uh, and I think, you know, also like when you get into splitting the party, I mean, the foyer of my house, there was almost a fist fight once because one of the guys split the party, just wanted to go adventuring rather than back up the guy who was in some room getting attacked. And he almost lost his character. And he was like, you ever do that again? I'll effing kill you. I'll fu- I mean, you, I swear to God, you know, it was, it was, it was like heated. Wow. So that's what I have to say about that neutral stuff. It's like, oh man, like just, <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's better when everyone plays in a team. But I understand your need to try to do something different. Uh, Well, Joe, anytime you want to come back on the show and play on this team, please know the party is always open. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Joe, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Joe will be back at some point in the near future. Maybe we'll have a Dungeons & Dragons game. Maybe he'll DM a game for us sometime. Probably probably a lot of demand for him to DM Dungeons & Dragons games, so I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. But he's going to be back for a part two at some point in the future. What a fun conversation. It's great when you, like, see someone for years, and you're like, yeah, I wonder if they're cool, you know? And then they turn out to be fucking cool. That's, that you know, it's not always like that, but when it is, it's, it's awesome. And speaking of awesome, next week on the show, we're keeping the awesome train rolling around here because... Going in a completely different direction, but still keeping it really heavy. Next week on the show, from The Gods. The Gods, one of the greatest bands of all time, from Neurosis. The God, Steve Von Till. That's right, Steve is on the show. We talk all about Neurosis. We talk about all his solo work. We talk about his new book of poetry. We talk about Spaz. We talk about Green Day. We talk about Gizm. We talk about, oh my gosh, this is a monster of an episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. That's going to be coming up later on this week on the show. And that's it. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. Go out there right now, get yourself informed, read up on what's going on in this world, on people's struggles, uh, donate money if you can, you know, just, just try, try and contribute, try and just stand up and smash fascism wherever you see it. Uh, we live in a world that right now, you know, it's in a, in a bit of a crisis, lots of crises, lots of crises facing our world. So we don't need Nazis as one of them. So fuck that fascism shit. Uh, all in, and remember also, uh, sign your organ donor cards because you don't need those, those organs anymore by the time they come looking for them. They're just dead weight at that point. Do something creative. You might as well go out and just try it, try and do something, you know, it can help. It can help your uh, mental health. It can maybe help someone else too. If you decide to put it out in the world, but you don't have to put it out in the world. Just do something as an outlet for yourself. Try it, make your own culture, uh, wear a mask, please. Do wear a mask. We're going to get through this thing. Um, yeah, that, that, please do that. Uh, and once again, I, I've, I've been trying meditating and it's really working for me. I'm not saying it's going to work for anyone else. I would never pretend to have answers for other people, but you know, if, if, if you're like me and someone that thought, oh, it's not for me, it's never going to work. Uh, try it and stick with it and see what happens because I didn't believe in this shit at all, at all. And uh, I've, I found it's given me a little bit of, I don't know, 
perspective, clarity, all, all the buzzwords. So that's it. That's it. All right. I don't have anything more to ramble on about. I don't think, uh, thanks for listening. I love you. Have a good week. Bye. Having a versatile, high quality piece of clothing feels great, but having a whole closet full of favorites feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0.